Welcome to ALM Radio, a different kind of oldies program. My name is John Lovering, and it's my pleasure to share my passion for old-time radio programming with you. On this track is a segment from the Biography of Sound series broadcast from 1954 to 1958 on NBC. Joseph Meyer is a NBC newsman, produced a documentary on Winston Churchill for his 80th birthday on November 30, 1954. It was an instant hit and highly praised by critics. Encouraged by that show's success, Myers went on to produce another piece on writer Ernest Hemingway, again to wide critical acclaim. After the third documentary on Gertrude Lawrence, the show was serialized and aired weekly for 60 minutes beginning in February 1955. Other people that were the subject of the biography of sound included Carl Sandburg, Stan Kenton, Ethel Barrymore, George Bernard Shaw, Ernest Hemingway, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Leo DeRocher, F. Scott Fitzgerald, George Washington, Albert Schweitzer, Babe Ruth, and the man who will be featured in the track you're going to hear, comedian Fred Allen. Wow, where to begin? Fred Allen, born John F. Sullivan in 1894, died on March 17, 1956, at the age of just 61. But the joy, fame, recognition, respect, and love he brought to millions of his peers and fans on vaudeville, on the radio, and in television belies such a short lifespan. He has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one for his work in radio and the second for his work in television. He was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1988, and a pedestrian passageway in the Boston Theater District is designated as Allen's Alley in honor of his memory. Fred Allen, as many radio stars did, began his career in vaudeville. He married a chorus girl named Portland Hoffa in 1927, and they remained married until his death. Fred and Portland worked out an act together on Broadway and spent their summers at their family home in Old Orchard Beach, Maine. I must add into the story that Fred Allen was in my grandmother's class in high school in Massachusetts. I remember her telling me many times that Fred Allen was in her class. We used to watch him on television when I was a kid. His career in radio began in the 1930s with appearances on a number of different shows. He used to say that Portland and I were injected into these shows to add a little class. By 1932, they were full-time into radio. Shows that they produced included Town Hall Tonight, The Linnet Bath Club Review, shows filled with satires and routines later adopted by Rowan and Martin and Laughin, Saturday Night Live's Weekend Update, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show, The Mighty Carson Art Players. Town Hall Tonight became the longest-running hour-long comedy-based show in radio history. He went back and forth between CBS and NBC, did the Texaco Star Theater, The Fred Allen Show on NBC, Allen's Alley started on December 6, 1942, the characters developed on the show would meet Fred and Portland as they walked up and down the fictional alleyway. Incredibly funny routines that sometimes got Fred and the show into trouble with the censors. In 1946 and 47, he started the Fred Allen Show on NBC while stars like Jack Benny, Brinson Allen, and Bing Crosby left NBC to go to CBS. That set up the false feud between Allen and Benny. They were good friends in real life, but developed this running feud gag and milked it very well. I could go on. As I said, there is so much written about Fred Allen, it was very difficult for me to do him honor. Biography and Sound on May 29, 1956, did an incredible documentary on Fred Allen, who had just passed away two months earlier. 
an amazing tribute with many wonderful guests and friends of Fred participating in the program. So, Heirloom Radio, a different kind of oldies program, now rebroadcasts the NBC show Biography and Sound, A Portrait of Fred Allen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this program. I do appreciate it, and I hope you will enjoy learning about this icon of an American comedian, Fred Allen. Broadcasting Company presents transcribed A Portrait of Fred Allen. There's only one chaplain, one Buster Keaton, one W.C. Fields, and there was only one Fred Allen. He liked to say something, and that was the, the thing I admired most about him. His jokes poked fun at somebody that needed it. Although uh, caustic at times, never at anyone's expense, he was never cruel. He was always tender and thinking of his fellow man. The way he talked, the way he think, the way he feel toward people, I have a great respect on him. So I thought he was such a wonderful human being. Good man shows us good example in our society. His wit and humor came right out of him just like water out of a faucet. As he once said to me, I never want to get used to anything I may ever have to do without. Now, if he's sitting on his own special cloud, he's probably giving everybody up there a wonderful time. Alan Fred, born in Boston, and at my birth, a strange thing happened. The doctor slapped me after I started crying. (laughs) My first brush with a critic. My parents immediately started me in show business by taking an ad in Variety, announcing my arrival. Fred Allen has diaper, will travel. (laughs) I travel to the three corners of the earth. Since then, there have been many changes. I'm not referring to the diaper. Ladies and gentlemen, our narrator, Jack Haley. No part of the thumbnail autobiography you've just heard is true. Actually, John Florence Sullivan was born in Cambridge. His father was a bookbinder in the Boston Public Library, and there, too, Fred found work as a stack boy while still attending public school in Cambridge. The pay wasn't anything to brag about, 25 cents an hour. Most important is the fact that one day in the stacks, Fred found a book on juggling. Fred began to practice juggling with cigar boxes, rubber balls, and oranges, and while still a youngster, was appearing on amateur nights in the local vaudeville houses. Benny Drone, then a professional vaudevillian, recalls Fred as a youngster. He was uh, sort of a pimply-faced kid... Very thin. Always looked undernourished. I guess he was. He was fatherless and motherless. A couple of maiden aunts raised him. While still in his teens, Fred appeared as an amateur juggler, wherever he could find a stage to work on and an audience to play to. Whenever he could, Fred returned to Boston University to study. But most of the time, he was on the road. He was not a good juggler, and once, when someone in the audience heckled him about it, he replied with a spontaneously funny remark that was far more entertaining than his juggling. As time passed, his juggling became merely an excuse for his coming on stage. 
What kept him there and what kept the audience with him was his dry, witty patter. I had a room, it was so small, it had removable doorknobs. If you wanted to bend over in your room, you could take off the doorknob just in case. <laughs> at Mrs. Brown's, when you took a bath, you had to keep singing. There was no lock on the bathroom door. Bill is the world's worst juggler. Fred played in vaudeville houses all over the country. It was on a booking abroad that Fred met his devoted friend... Uncle Jim Hawkins. We were in Australia together in 1915, and he was playing over there one circuit, and I was playing with my wife on another circuit. And that was when he was a kid, you know, struggling. But even in those days, he was so far ahead of us, who had five, six, eight, ten years on him in the comedy department and everything else. He was way ahead of us. And uh, nobody helped Fred Allen but Fred Allen. Don't ever let anybody tell you that they helped him because that marvelous creative mind of his is what did everything. While he was in Australia, Fred's path crossed with that of his old friend, Doc Rockwell. The people there are very provincial, and they looked on these American actors. Uh, we wore different clothes, and they'd run down the streets hoo-hooing and laughing and booing in the theaters. And uh, the ordeal until you finally got through and out of there was terrific. And Fred had quite a uh, a little device to annoy the people in the hotels, the hotel proprietors. He made out of uh, rubber, little sheets of rubber, he cut small little things that looked like uh, footprints and made little rubber stamps out of them. And in the hotel, going from the lavatory, the wash bowl, to the bathtub, he would have these little series of footprints that would come out and go over as if they had disappeared down the drain. The life of a vaudevillian was never an easy one, but for Fred, it was especially hard for a very special reason. Uncle Jim Hawkins. Fred was canceled, not because he didn't do a good act, but because he wasn't understood. The manager would call up and say, I hate to cancel this kid. I laughed like the Dickens. The musicians laughed, the stagehands laughed, but our audience didn't know what he was doing. You see? And as I say, in those days, we'd say to, uh, say to him, say, look, why don't you uh, try this? You know, you hate to see a kid canceled so many times. You'd say, well, why don't you take some old gags and dish them off a plate, you know, and let the audience in on some of it so they can get a few. He says, no, there must be some intelligent people in this world, and I'm going to hew to that line until I find them. Now, this, these are days when it took a lot of courage to do that because, don't forget, they were hungry days. They were short-dollar days. Fred was born John Florence Sullivan. In vaudeville, he was known variously as Paul Huckle, Fred St. James, and Freddie James. How he became known as Fred Allen is told by Benny Drone. He was up in a booking office. A fellow by the name of Edgar Allen used to book the uh, Fox Circuit around New York. And he was looking for work, and the guy says, what do you do? He says, I juggle. He says, go right down to the 14th Street Theater, the Fox Theater down there, and get your stuff down there, and you'll be able to go on for the rest of uh, the day, and uh, it's a split week. You'll get the three days' pay. So after he left, the man at the theater called up and said, what's this fellow's name is sending down? Because we'd like to put his name out with the rest of the vaudeville bill in front of the theater. And this fellow, Edgar Allen, said his name is Edgar Allen. 
And the fellow on the other side thought he said Fred Allen, so out went Fred Allen, and from then on he was known as Fred Allen. Fred made his Broadway bow in the passing show of 1922. Later he appeared in Greenwich Village Follies, Three's a Crowd, and The Little Show. Appearing with him in The Little Show were Libby Holman and Clifton Webb. The first time I ever met Fred was on the stage of the Music Box Theater. We were called there for a reading of the various sketches. And from the moment I met him, I realized that this was a very generous, sympathetic, wonderful man. We'd played the show for a year in New York, and Fred became a great, great success. Perhaps one reason for Fred's success is that he was always dedicated to his work. He was an actor of the old school, you know, a comedian with a fine intellect. George Jessel. His talents would have stood up in the days of Raymond Hitchcock, Nat Goodwin, Willie Collier, and Julius Tannen on the stage. And the lecture halls, he would have ably held his own with any Will Rogers, Peter Finley, Dunn, and all the other giants of a more literate age. And as I think of him now, I think that Fred would have been more appreciated in the days of swirling capes and low bows. Another longtime friend and admirer of Fred's is John Royal. While many actors were playing the horses or the nightclubs, Fred would be in his dressing room playing the typewriter one finger, either writing for himself or writing for some other artist not so well off who needed some material. He never became competitive uh, with people. Fred never kicked about billing. He never kicked about dressing rooms. All he wanted was a space in one where he could go out and work. Fred never was vicious. Fred found happiness in his work on the stage, but he found an even greater happiness in a person he met there. Fred and Portland were married on May 4th, 1927. It was an extraordinarily happy marriage. And this wonderful woman, she was a great inspiration to Fred. Everything he did. Uncle Jim Hawkins. Because he respected her so much. When he would write hour after hour and hour at any time in the morning, she was with him. Always. All night when he'd be writing. And she would set the time for him to take the walks. When she'd say, that's enough, let's take a walk. He would drop everything. There was never any such thing as a squabble in that family. And there was no one ever as married as they were. Because they were always together, everywhere, no matter where they went. He went nowhere without her. And the same with Portman. She never went anywhere without him. And if they walked down the street and holding hands, you know, it wasn't any silly holding hands. It was a beautiful bond between two people that the average person today with this crazy way of living doesn't understand. In the spring of 1932, after a two-year run in the little show, Fred closed on Broadway. On October 23rd of that year, he appeared in his first radio show. This is Roger White, Fred Allen's producer in the days of the Linnet Bath Club. <laughs> Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, the makers of Linnet, to present another in their series of Linnet Bath Club Reviews, starring Fred Allen. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. 
Who is it from, boy? Joe Miller, the old joke man. Yes? He says you can't be here tonight. That's too bad. The telegram's collect. To save you the trouble, I read it on the way up. To save me some more trouble, you can pay for it on the way back. Okay. And now, on with the show. After six or seven weeks, the critics, everybody, who is this Fred Allen? That's what really started him. All the radio critics just want to know who Fred Allen was. From there on, he really started to rise. He had nothing else in the world on his mind but show business. Doc Rockwell. He didn't clutter it up with a lot of photography or do-it-yourself stuff or anything like that. He just concentrated on this one thing. I recall he read, say, 13 or 14 newspapers every day. That was part of it. But he concentrated on that one thing, and as a result, his mind was absolutely clear. His programs were called at various times the Salad Bowl Review, the Salapatica Review, the Hour of Smiles, which in 1934 became the popular town hall tonight. Sylvester Weaver, now chairman of the board of NBC, was at that time agency producer of Town Hall Tonight. Mr. Weaver. Fred was doing a very literate, high-class program, even though it was broadly conceived in many ways and had a tremendous audience, which a lot of uh, critics, particularly intellectual critics, now forget. They forget that the Fred Allen show, the Town Hall Tonight show in those days, in the middle 30s, reached, uh, according to our research at the time, about three homes out of four, three radio homes out of four, followed the Fred Allen show. This is as big an audience as anybody could get. Town Hall Tonight! a little free with his adjectives tonight, but I'll try to live up to as much of it as I can. Now, before starting the show, I'll read you the town hall bulletin for tonight. On account of the laundry strike, Madam Dugan, the spiritualist, says that there will be no seance this week. Madam says the laundry hasn't sent back her clean sheets, and she's not going to hold a sloppy seance with her ghosts running around in dirty linen. The newsreel commentary and the newsreel little vignettes that Fred did were probably the most uh, incisive commentary on the American scene that anyone ever did do in the mass arts. The camera starts, and we bring you the latest news of the week. The town hall news sees nothing, shows all. Atlantic City, New Jersey. New Jersey Mosquito Association protests reduction of mosquito extermination funds for 1935. Town Hall News sees summer business jeopardized by mosquitoes. Mrs. Belladonna, committee sister, aroused. I was chairman of the committee last year, but when the mosquitoes got through with me, I couldn't use my chair all summer. The next mosquito stings me, I'm going to sting him right back in the same place if possible. Now to Herman Woke in London. I was one of his assistant scriptwriters in Town Hall tonight. Of course, Fred was by far the best writer of the lot on the show, and I think I can say, and nobody would argue this statement, that Fred was the best writer that radio ever had. He was an original humorist of the first quality, and the purpose of having youngsters like myself around 
was simply to uh, eke out the sheer volume of the material. Toward the end of each town hall tonight show, Fred would feature some amateurs. It didn't matter much what their talent was. What made it so wonderful was Fred's ad-lib interviews with these people. It was one of these amateurs who was the cause of one of the classic feuds of show business. Fred had a boy violinist on the show. He was ten years old. And he played the B. And when he got through with the number, he said to him, he asked this boy, he said, how old are you? And the boy says, ten. He says, ten years old, and you played the B so well. He says, Jack Benny ought to be ashamed of himself. And that's all he said. And he probably said that, knowing that I was listening to his show, just to make me laugh. So on the next show, on my show, at the very tag of the show, the thing we call the tag, I said to Mary... And this was merely to make Fred laugh. I said, Mary, take this. I'm going to dictate a message to Fred Allen. I want you to mail it for me. Say, dear Fred, when I was 10 years old, I could play the B2. Well, the next week, Fred had some stooges on who were supposed to have known me in Waukegan, Illinois, to prove that I couldn't play the B when I was 10 years old. The following week on my show, I brought people on from Waukegan who said I could play the B when I was 10 years old. And before we knew it, we were into the darndest feud you have ever seen, which was very funny. And the strange part of it is, I can safely say from six to eight months with this feud, before we even called each other on the phone about it. Jack, don't get excited. Look, if you're cheap, you're cheap. That's the way I look at it. Some people save asparagus ends. It's a hobby. My hobby is not spending. I hate to get these big laughs on your program. Probably the most satisfying event to Fred in the whole wonderful feud was the night he stole Benny's britches. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a made the man so funny? We put this question to John Crosby. A good deal of humor is just truth, just telling the truth. Um, and Fred had that to a very great degree, a greater degree, I think, than most any man I ever saw. Well, many of his wittiest cracks were just something that was, was terribly true, but it never occurred to you until he said it. Fred would always pick a big target. John Royal. Because if you're going to be provocative, and he was provocative... Uh, he, he made provocation, and people would take sides, and they'd bow. And he went on the basis of using words instead of the old slapstick or the bladder. He would throw custard pies with words. The policies of the major networks in regard to censorship today is much more adult than it was in Fred's early days, so he was constantly at war with one vice president or another. Fred was uh, a rebel against authority. Pat Weaver. He objected to authority whenever it attempted to uh, 
uh, interfere with what he wanted to do. Fred actually was not uh, a comedian who used blue material, but the censors were uh, terribly cautious, shall we say, and uh, would frequently read into the line something that was, was not there. Practically every big-name star was at one time a guest on Fred's show, but it was an unknown guest who brought along an eagle who set the spark for one of Fred's really unforgettable broadcasts. John Crosby recalls... The night the eagle got loose was something Fred never quite got over. The eagle got loose and uh, committed an indiscretion right on, on the audience. There were roars of laughter. Whether this really meant anything to the radio audience or not, I don't know. But they kept kidding about it for weeks and weeks later. Well, it was a very large studio. And uh, the eagle was bald-headed, as the American uh, national bird is. But he became excited. And then flying from uh, the stage to the rear balcony, his feathers flew. Needless to say, there have been no more eagles in the studio. <laughs> As long as the, uh, Mr. Evans, I want to congratulate you. You were the first one to get a rise out of the eagle since he got up there. And I think as long as the eagle is a bird of prey, that we have just uh, better discontinue the question and start praying. We have a loose eagle in the studio. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller's hardly building a lot of ad-lib exits here. So much time has been taken up with the Captain Knight around there with a pound of hamburger. <laughs> Tried to get there. Captain Knight was back there with a minute steak uh, a little while ago, but it was too well done, and the eagle sent it back. Now, he just arrived with the proper steak, and I can assure you that uh, Captain Knight has the eagle or vice versa. <laughs> Show business made Fred Allen a rich man, but he remained throughout his life a man of simple taste and modest habit. Twice a day, Fred used to stop at a newsstand at the corner of 57th and 7th Avenue and visit with newsboy Stanley Truklinski. He did so much for so many people that so few knew really about. If you looked at his face, it looked so deadpan, unsmiling at times, but yet the man had a heart so much larger than the average person. Probably the greatest pleasure his financial independence brought him was it enabled him to help other people. Fred Amort Green recalls an amusing account of Fred's generosity. Fred, for many years, of course, was the easiest touch on Broadway or anywhere else. Uh, if a man once played with him in a bill in Topeka, Kansas, he then suddenly considered Fred, 40 years later, to be his uncle and uh, wrote him a letter saying, I need money. And Fred, of course, invariably would send it. And so there were many panhandlers around town, actual panhandlers, grifters, who would attach themselves to Fred and meet up with him wherever he went around town. Fred was a tremendous walker, a great walker. And every Sunday, he used to go to Mass at St. Malachy's Church on uh, 49th Street. And there was one fellow around town whose name was The Whistler. And he discovered that Fred was going to Mass at 11 o'clock every Sunday. And so he stationed himself along the line of march on 49th Street, a few doors up from the church, in front of a ticket office, a Broadway ticket office. And uh, every Sunday when Fred would come by, he would say, Hello, Fred. And Fred would say, Hello, Whistler. 
and hand him two dollars. This went on for a long time. As a matter of fact, it was it became it became such a routine that the whistler got himself a little job in the ticket office running tickets for them. And one Sunday, uh, Fred showed up, and there was no whistler. And he looked into the ticket office, and one of the men from the ticket office came running out and said, Fred, oh, Mr. Allen. He said, yes. He says, uh, where's the whistler? And the man said, well, today was his birthday, so he took the day off. Would you give me $2 for him? And Fred said, yes, yes, I would. And he handed him the $2 and started away. And then as an afterthought, he came back and he said, oh, by the way, said Fred, uh, would you tell the whistler that I'm going to the coast for eight weeks? He says, here's $16, and I'll see him when I get back. John Crosby. He was always a target for out-of-work actors, and uh, he used to carry, I remember, three or four different bundles of money, and he knew where, you know, where the $5 bills and the $10 bills and the $1 bills were. He was a constructive giver, too. He wasn't a soft touch. He was an understandable touch. Uncle Jim Hawkins. Here's what you call constructive help. Fellow come up and see, says, Jim, could I see Fred? Well, now he's an old-timer, you know, a fellow about 50. And, uh, well, he says, tell you the truth, they're going to put the slug in the lock over at that flea bag that I'm living at over at 8th Avenue. He says, if I don't get 30 bucks, he says, I'll be carrying the banner, you know. Well, I says, one thing before I ask him now. Did you ever play on the bill with Fred? Oh, he says, 30-some years ago, but he wouldn't remember, Jim. I says, wait here a minute. I went in, Fred was busy writing, and I said, listen, do you ever remember a knack named so-and-so and so-and-so? Oh, yes, Jim, yes, gee, that was 30-some years. You know, he had the marvelous faculty of being able to reach into that pigeonhole and bringing that out. Yes, he says, sure, sure, nice act, too. Why? Well, I says, he's here now, wants to see you. He says, well, sure, be glad to see him, uh... He said, uh, is this clamping the dentures? You know, that's the bite. <laughs> that was his expression for putting the bite on. I said, yes, it is. Oh, sure, send him in. Now the fellow comes in. He's Mr. Allen. Fred says it wasn't Mr. 30-some years ago at the Princess in Chicago and in Rockford and Joliet, Illinois. Jesus, I didn't think you could remember. He says, why not? You did a good act. You were nice people. Now, what's your problem? He told him in the hotel. Needed 30 bucks. He says, I hate to do it, but he says, I don't know. Well, he says, we can take care of that. That's no problem, but what are you going to do? Well, he says, I'm all washed up as far as show business is concerned. I know that, eh? And I'm willing to work, but I can't get a job. Well, what kind of work? Well, he says, I'm handy around a gas station. You know, I'm not clever, but I'm handy around cars and things like that. So Fred gave him $100, a C-note. Now, he set that man up in that job. He asked him if he needed any more money. He didn't. But the nicest part of the whole thing, he took that gas station telephone number, and once every week for almost a year, he would call it, and let's say for the one of a name is this Hunt's gas station, yeah, this is Fred Allen. Could I talk to my friend Tom Bailey? Only to give that fellow a standing among a lot of strangers. Fred loved to eat, and he was especially fond of people who made an art of preparing and serving good food. Su Chan recalls. Once I remember, I, which I never forget, my place was burned down. So he called me at home right away. He said, Sue, I'm awfully sorry, heard that your restaurant burned down. 
What can we do? I said, Fred, everything gonna be all right. He said, well, you know, Pody and I, not much money, but we have a little bit put on the side. In case you need it, you can have it. So I told him, I said, Fred, I appreciate it. I may count on you, but I don't need it yet. So after we opened and doing the building, every day he passing by, he never failed to walk in, to peek in and look in, see what, how progress we're doing. The day first we opened, he returned. He come to congratulate us. This kind of thought and helpful and thinking toward people, I doubted very many that we able to find today. Fred Allen continues. Our narrator, Jack Haley. Fred once said if he could choose some other profession, he would have become a writer. But he was a writer. A good one, as Harry Von Zell points out. His ability to so delicately exaggerate and satirize commonplace characters everyone knows or has known resulted in many lasting creations. One could not forget such people as the leather-lunged, flagrant political orator of the South, Senator Claghorn. They heard this character that later he named Senator Claghorn, which, of course, made him famous more than anything else. The fact that Fred named him and wrote the material for him. Kenny Delmar, sometimes better known as Senator Claghorn. Fred Allen spent a great deal of time over each character portrayal or delineation in the writing of it. And when it came time to be done on the air, he never once gave the slightest kind of, of reading to follow. He felt that you were hired for the job and he had confidence enough in you and in your interpretation that uh, he never, as many directors will do, uh, give you uh, a different angle or a different idea or, or a different perception of what he meant. He expected you to know and whether he was dissatisfied or not, you were never aware of it. In other words, Fred Allen was never, in the sense that we come to think of it now, a boss. He, he was always a friend. And, of course, this made his shows and his rehearsals the most unusual, the most uh, dignified. Another member of the alley, Alan Reed, who played Falstaff Openshaw. It was a wonderful device that Fred created, Alan's alley. He um, always based his humor on current events, on topical things, which is why he was able to last so long and maintain so high a standard. He didn't have to dig in joke files and find jokes. He made his own jokes about things that were happening. Well, Portland, here we are back in Allen's Alley. Say, the senator's home tonight. His hound dog is curled up there under the porch. See it? Somebody, I say, somebody now. Yes, I know. Claghorn's the name, Senator Claghorn. I know, I know. You're from Dixie. When I eat crackers in bed, I only eat Georgia crackers. Now, wait a minute. When I leave New York, I always take the South Ferry. Now, wait a minute. Way down upon the Swanee River. You're a little... I'm singing Swanee songs. Well, I know what you're singing. Show some reverence, son. Kneel down and uncover. Now, wait a minute. Now, I wonder how Titus Moody is doing. Howdy, bub. You're <laughs> starting to sound like Dennis Day, Titus. 
Do you have any trouble sleeping? I only half sleep. Half sleep? I got short eyelids. Well, are you the only one awake on the farm? The cow had insomnia. Your cow didn't sleep at all? The bags under her eyes were so big, I didn't know which end to milk. You were confused, eh? Yeah. First time I milked the wrong end and got two buckets full of homogenized tears. Let's try, let's try this next door here. No. Oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. You are expecting maybe Hoagie Carbuncle. <laughs> Tell me, Mrs. Ann, do you have trouble sleeping? Who could sleep? Every night with his dreaming, my husband Pierre is waking me up. He dreams, huh? Always he has different things. Dreams he's different things? How do you mean? One night, Pierre is dreaming he is the lone stranger. Yeah. <laughs> All night long, he is yelling, Hi-ho, Silver! Hi-ho, Silver, huh? Upstairs is living a Mr. Silver. Yeah. <laughs> All night, he is yelling back, Hi-ho, Nussbaum! Hi, buddy. Cassidy, what is that green flag with the gold harp on it, Ajax? Erin Gobra. You mean you're celebrating? Haven't you heard the news, you heathen infidel? Ireland is free. Have you been celebrating all week? Ah, me boy, as soon as word reached Kerrigan's, we all drank a toast to the Republic. Yes. Then we drank a toast to Eamon de Valera. Yes. Next, a toast to King George. Yes. Then a toast to Martin Downey. Yes. Then, then a voice said, this drink is on the house. On the house. How we all got up there, nobody knew. (laughs) Hey, Jack, you are in bad shape. I'm not long for this world. (laughs) Fred, by now, was at the top of his profession. He could have chosen his friends from among the famous, the brilliant, the great people of our times. More often, he chose his friends for their own personal worth. As restaurateur Max Asnus recalls. There's some people, when they get on the top, they get so dizzy. And they look at on people when they are not as successful as they are, and they look down on them. But Fred was a type that nobody was ever too small for him. He was never too big for anybody. He used to come in in my place... And when he used to come in, you know, there some people want privacy. He loved people, and that's the reason people loved him. He used to come in at my place, he used to eat turkey and matches and orange juice. He was a good citizen, a good showman, and a good friend. This is Jimmy Durante. Fred and I used to patronize the same restaurant, Luigini's on 48th Street, an Italian restaurant. Every... Other night, when they used to go into Luigini's, Fred would be there at his regular table. So one night, he said, Jim, he says, come on to the kitchen with me. He says, I'm going to cook my own macaroni. So he goes into the kitchen. I goes in with him. Luigini goes in with him. And uh, he, puts the, he puts the macaroni in the boiling water. And uh, 
as we're talking and talking, all of a sudden, that the bowl overflows and the jail is flooded with this water. So Luigini threw his boat out of the kitchen and he was served that night at his regular table. Inferior later in my place for 21 years and a half. Luigino. When he come to my place, he ate a big bowl of salad, special Luigino bass, with the cheese, with the Italian prosciutto, he called ham, called any way you like, but that's called prosciutto. Now, next plate, he ate Freddy Alice, a big plate of spaghetti. A pandy garlic, all my place, he smell garlic. I don't say stink, it's my smell garlic, and he plenty. Oh, yes, my place smell nice, you know. Oh, yes. You gotta, you gotta love that man because he don't bother nobody. He's very plain, artist, and a sincere man. Very sincere. Fred got a lot of pleasure out of writing to people and witty and wonderful letters they were. Dennis Day. When anyone received a letter from Fred Allen out here on the coast, it was like uh, getting a first edition. Everyone would get a call and say, I want you to come over and read the letter because it was invariably, it was such a funny letter. He loved to keep in touch with people and he, you know, all of his letters were in small letters. He never used any capitals, but there were always gems of wit. Yes, and gems of wit they were. Goodman Ace. It was in one of the many acerbic letters I got from Fred when I was in Hollywood that he wrote his now famous description of the West Coast. California, he said, is a wonderful place to live if you happen to be an orange. One day I asked Fred why he always typed in lowercase. Doesn't the shift key on your typewriter work, Fred? And he said, yes, but I've never been able to shift for myself. In spite of the fact that Fred lived directly across the street from a fashionable athletic club, he preferred to exercise at a YMCA several blocks away. Sometimes Harry Tugan would go over to the Y with Fred. Fred was a creature of, uh, of habit and routine, and anything that disturbed his habit uh, disturbed him very much. His habit even went so far as to follow him into the gymnasium. I used to go to the YMCA with him every, oh, about twice a week. Fred would be in working with uh, a medicine ball, and... He always threw the medicine ball exactly a hundred times to this fellow who was working with him and then boxed exactly three rounds and then played uh, two games of doubles in handball. And I remember once when he got a phone call after he'd only thrown about 50 medicine balls and we had to leave in a hurry for some conference with an agent. And for the rest of that week, Fred was complaining about how he hadn't had a chance to work out that week and felt sluggish and <laughs> not up to par. It was routine and he had to stick with it. One of Fred's pals at the YMCA was Joe DeGray. We boxed, uh, oh, I guess about ten years together, two or three times a week. Every once in a while, there'd be a check in the mail from me, a hundred or two hundred dollars. You never knew what it was going to be, even though I never expected anything. It was my pleasure. And some man. Another YMCA buddy, Mike Jakes. Fred uh, did uh, call us his stable, and uh, we all liked the idea. We liked the name stable. It uh, it uh, seemed to bring us uh, so much closer to him. Uh, uh, it's a funny thing. Uh, as soon as Fred would hit the West Side YMCA there, 
everybody. Things were quiet there until Fred got in, and then everybody seemed to be so enthused uh, when they'd see him come in, because he always had a smile on his face and always something funny to say. Most of the year, you'd find Fred either at some radio studio or hunched over a typewriter getting next week's shows ready. But when vacation time came around, he enjoyed going to Maine and visiting old friends there. I'm Bill Mullen from Old Orchard Beach, Maine. I've known Fred Allen for over 20 years. I can always remember our golfing at the Orchard Beach Country Club summers. And, of course, Fred uh, never played golf because he never did anything he wasn't perfect in. And, of course, golf wasn't one of them. But in these golfing outings... Fred would uh, caddy for Rear Admiral Father Bob White. And uh, one summer, a song was very popular called Doing the What Comes Naturally. And Fred made a verse up to this song that he dedicated to Father White. And I can remember it so well. It goes like this. Father White shoots very tight. Tough shots, he won't risk them. When he misses, all he says is Dominus Fobiscum. My wife and I came to this country in 1946. And so could be true to say that we came in just for the last act, a very glorious last act. James Mason. He was, in a sense, our welcoming committee. He gave us help in our life in New York. He helped us to feel at home in America. But most of all, he made us feel good. He made us feel good in this new country that we'd come to live in. He made us love New York. He made us love America by no positive propaganda, I assure you. He just made us feel at home. An endearing picture of Fred as the American in Paris is recalled by Tallulah Bankhead. When Fred Allen and I worked together for two years on the big show, he was certainly the rock of Gibraltar to all of us. And I remember, as I think you probably all know, who've read so much and heard so much about him, he was a deeply religious man. And every Sunday we'd break between about 10 and 11.30, and he and his beloved Porson would go to church. And I'd always say, well, darling, you burn a candle for me. And when we went to London and Paris to do the big show, when we were in Paris, Fred was a great walker, and he very rarely took a taxi or a car, and he wanted to find a church, and I asked him, couldn't I give him, them a lift in my car? And we had a French chauffeur, and he uh, drove him to this beautiful church. And as Fred got out, he said, do you think we'll need an interpreter in there? Mort Green and George Foster. In Paris, he came up with some of the funniest lines I personally have ever heard. He said that the food in Paris is served in flames. For the first time, the American in Paris enjoys food he can read by. He also had the great lines about the money. He said that, you know, French money is made of ridiculously thin paper. And he said that uh, it was the thinnest paper he'd ever seen in public. He also had lines like, uh, uh, French money is Kleenex with murals. He said he'd been blowing his nose in it for five days before he found out it was money. Uh, practically nothing was sacred in that respect to Fred, and many people mistook this as uh, bitterness, which it was not at all. It was the man's innate sense of what was comic and what was... Uh, attackable in any given situation. This included, incidentally, himself. One of the great classics, humorous creations, came about when Fred and Tallulah satirized a Mr. and Mrs. Breakfast Team. Hey, knucklehead! <laughs> Get out of that bed. We've got a program to do. Will you quit yapping? 
Six o'clock in the morning. Who's up to listen to us? A couple of garbage collectors and some burglars, maybe. What a racket. Well, if you want to go back to hustling gardenias in front of Charles, go right ahead. Yeah, and what were you? Queen of the powder room at the brass rail. My mouth tastes... My mouth tastes like a sand hog just pulled his foot out of it. Cad, I'm sleepy. Well, why don't you stay home some night and try sleeping? Sleeping on that Pasternak Pussy Willow mattress? Pussy Willow. It's stuffed with cat hair. Every time I lie down on that cat hair, my back arches. Oh, stop beefing. Here's your coffee. Well, it's about time. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Poison me? It's that Makista's Vita Fresh coffee. It won't kill you. It won't, eh? Why do you think the government makes them put that skull and crossbones on the can? that. I spilled some on my vest. Oh, you're such a slob. Yeah. I'll get that bottle of little panther spot remover. You're not putting any of that atom juice on me. <laughs> In 1955, Fred was awarded the Radio Pioneer's Citation for bringing to radio and television the finest traditions of the American stage for over 25 years. Fred Allen created characters of enduring and endearing quality. Who can forget his one long pan detective skit? Ah, uh, greetings and shulam alakum, Detective, one long pan, oriental Sam Spade on job. All right, Louis Loptagon, long pan catching everyone. All right, Louis Loptagon, ho ho, long pan, long pan, an exceptional voice tonight. Maybe catch some fan letter from Jackie Eigen. China, click of people, duck soup for one long pan. Are you Ling and Mr. Buffington? Chong! Long pan! Ding ho! Ding ho! Sing woo foo, sing tong! Oh, hoi fang ling lung mu gai pan! Oh, mu gu gai pan! Oh, ding woo foo! Hola ma, hola ma, hola ma, Chong, chong, a long pan, go to school together. Uh, Hong Kong, you class 28. To the table down at Lom Fong. Now let's relieve Fred's traditional Christmas show. You see, being Santa Claus is just a pain in one century after the other. I'm giving the world back to Rand and McNally. I'm through. Oh, please don't say that, Santa. Have pity on us kids. We'll have no toys. No, Santa ain't a moving, son. This is one Christmas I'm, I'm going to enjoy in peace. Shucks. Hush your crying, son. Hey, Ma. Yes, Santa. Where's my mittens, my bag, my reindeer, my sleigh? Santa, you ain't a go. Yep, I'm a going, Ma. Honest Santa Claus. Yep, son, I changed my mind. Oh, thank you, Santa. Christmas ain't Christmas without Santa Claus. I'm giving the world one more chance. Can I have a statement for all the kiddies, Santa? You bet you can, Sonny. Just say, it's Merry Christmas. Hi, old Dunder. Hi, old Blitzen. He always had a little dab of humor. I call it little dabs because he, he issued them in dabs. You couldn't uh, pin Fred down. He would have a dab of humor for everything. Herb Schreiner. Fred had one bit of philosophy which I, I think is uh, worth remembering along with a great deal of his humor, and that was that he once said that if you want what you have, you'll always have what you want. In his last letter to Doc Rockwell, he wrote, Doc, 
He says, I can't eat salt, I can't eat sugar, I can't have any meat, I can't lie on the sand, I can't go in the water. I may just as well stay down here and stay in a closet. And the sort of a prophetic little part he had in there, I don't know how it came up, but he says the way to live is to live each day as if that day may be the last and someday you'll be right. His close friend, Donald Voorhees, remembers Fred at this time of his life. Each year, Fred dreaded more the chore of this weekly radio program that he had to do. And toward the end of the season, he'd be really quite beat. As a matter of fact, that brought on the... No question but what that brought on, the hypertension, high blood pressure. Because it got to be more and more of just a dreadful chore uh, as time went on. Because... Fred would never settle for repeats or imitations. Fred looked at television with a jaundiced eye. I have been in vaudeville, I have been in the theater, I've been in motion pictures, and I have been in radio. Currently, I am in trouble. Trouble spelled sideways is television. (laughs) Television has not only changed the lives of the performers, but the lives of many innocent people. I heard of a sad case where... After a couple got married on the bride and groom television program, they learned that their marriage will not be legal in 12 states for six weeks until the kinescope is shown there. (laughs) In spite of his jokes about television, the medium appealed to his show business blood, and he couldn't stay away from it. Mr. Weaver talent like Fred's was needed by television, and if it had not been for his health, he would have, I'm sure, lightened up his formula, and the town hall tonight or its television version would have become one of the great classics of TV. All his life, Fred had wanted to be a writer, and it was a source of great happiness to him that his treadmill to oblivion became a bestseller. When he died on March 17th of this year, he left behind an unfinished autobiography, which he wrote in a small, dusty office he rented for Mort Green and George Foster. One of the most touching things was coming back to this office the Tuesday after Fred had died. He'd been there on Saturday. We hadn't been in the office for, oh, six or seven days. And we never quite were sure when Fred had been in the office. We knew he was there every day, and yet you never... There there was never any sign that Fred had occupied this place, except if you knew Fred. Everything was neat as a pin. The dust was still neat. He disturbed so little, and yet disturbed so much with his tremendous talent. But personally, he was the most methodical in the finer sense of what methodical means, rather than against the drudgery sense of it. Uh, We walked in that following Tuesday and opened the refrigerator, and there were the two bottles of apple juice and the four or five pieces of fruit and and the little container of cottage cheese. And in the bottom of the wastebasket, which was quite clean, were a few little shavings from the pencils he had sharpened, the last pencils he had sharpened. But when I opened the secretary drawer, and in it were 12 brown paper bags, neatly folded. These were the bags with which he had brought to work the fruit, the apple juice, and so on. He never threw them away in case we might possibly need them. And the big show, there was a theme song written by Magic Wilson that we always ended the show with. And I would like to end this tribute by quoting the last line on the big show. 
May the good Lord bless and keep you until we meet again. Good night, darling. Ladies and gentlemen, His Eminence Francis Cardinal Spellman, Archbishop of New York. What I always admired about Fred Allen was the same quality that Will Rogers possessed as a great interpreter of American life. The quality was essential and unassuming charity. He loved and served his God and country well. He was kind and helpful to his neighbor and his neighbor was every human being. He was ever ready in his help to those in need and was especially loyal and generous to those of his own profession. His humor, universal and popular as it was, never was offensive. Fred was a truly religious man. He frequented the famed actor's church, St. Malachy's, close to the glittering lights of Broadway. And in the midst of those lights, he lived his life publicly, but also quietly, as he humbly practiced his faith. Fred Allen loved life and lived it well, but was conscious that earthly life is a preparation for life eternal. He made his diagnosis of life and his prognosis of afterlife in the language of the theater, this is only the prologue here. The big show is up above. Listening to Biography in Sound, which tonight presented transcribed a portrait of Fred Allen. We wish to express our appreciation to our moderator, Jack Healy, and to the few of Fred's many friends who appeared on the program. On the NBC staff, our thanks go to Earl Hamner, writer, Robert Wogan, director, and to the many who helped in its preparation. This is Ed Hurley. This has been an NBC Radio Network production.